Sub loads of pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and welcome back to our new gen series, Myth Busting 1995. We are at the first pay-per-view of that year, um, the Royal Rumble. Um, back when the Royal Rumble, uh, you know, hasn't gone through quite so much, you know, heinous messing around with it. And it was still, you know, the most exciting show of the year at least uh at least for my money and rumble 95 is a a show as we mentioned briefly last week which is just so high in quality particularly on the undercards and with a very underrated rumble match to boot that has you know maybe the something to be in the top five most iconic finishes in a match ever um just just for pure replay value if nothing else so it's a great way to start this series off really Oh, absolutely. You're talking about one of my favorite pay-per-views of all time, uh, which is, uh, you know, I'm going to be trolling through many of them in column form on LOP for the next year or so. So uh, do keep your eyes peeled for this one dropping because I could I could gush at length about it. I think it's it's got such cohesion as a show in a way that I think is actually quite rarefied air. You know, I don't really think there's a lull point anywhere because even sort of the weakest match which i'm sure we'll get to in due course uh, is 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 entertaining in its own way anyway uh, and there's a there's sort of a great theme that runs through the whole show about um uh sort of levels of competition uh that that kind of i think you can you can uh, pick out of the event which i'll sort of uh, expand upon as we go here. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you're into your, and it's quite ironic because I'm obviously the performance art guy, but if you're into your wrestling as presented as sport, uh, then I think you can't really go far wrong with, with uh, Rumble 95, bar one or two, I guess, kind of uh, uh, standout uh, or moments that kind of stand apart from that idea. For the most part, I think it's really well presented as a, as a legitimate uh, sporting event in a lot of ways and I, it just hangs together so brilliantly it's got great match quality I mean like you say a absolutely iconic uh, conclusion probably a word we throw around a little too much I dare say as a wrestling community but this one is it's really meant you know it's the many people will know that finish even if they haven't seen the show because it's it's arguably the most important conclusion in in all of the rumbles history when you think about how it's come to, you know, the, the two feet rule, how it's come to inform so much of the rumble thereafter, you know, you think about the, the, the meaning of Austin's win and the rocks win and uh, the stuff they do with Kofi every year, you know, the, the two foot rule is, is, is hugely essential to rumble. So that is created or at least explicitly recognized for the first time on this show. You have, uh, in my mind, the the best entry of the feud of the entire era between Brett and Diesel on this sh- uh, card. You've got the the kickoff for, I think, one of the most criminally undervalued and underappreciated Intercontinental Championship rivalries ever on this pay per view. There's a lot going on, and uh, most of it, if not all of it, I think is is frankly bloody brilliant. I think the best Royal Rumble. I mean, by Royal Rumble, I mean the pay-per-view as opposed to the match itself. The best Royal Rumbles always look back to the previous year and forward to WrestleMania. It's such an underrated aspect of what makes a good Rumble pay-per-view. And what I love about this is 
uh, all of the main storylines from 1994 are in play here or are referenced mm. here. There's a great promo where Lex Luger talks. It's not 1994 anymore. It's a new year. It's a new Lex. You know, I'm going to right the wrongs of the previous year. Obviously, you know, referring to uh, to WrestleMania 10. Um, you've got Brett's um, loss of the title to Bob Backlund, which was swiftly followed by Diesel beating Backlund in a squash on a house show and Diesel becoming the champion. So you've got a lot of sort of unresolved stuff in the title scene. Owen Hart's fetish jealousy of his brother, which has been going on since, <laughs> again, the previous year and is still, you know, is still affecting uh, matches and match outcomes all the way up to this point. Um, you've got Razor Ramon's kind of um, intercontinental title run. Um, again, like thinking back to WrestleMania 10 and that Lazar match, um, and obviously looking forward to to uh, SummerSlam '95 when they do it again, and and it's it's just this this great sort of sense. You know, you got the Michael's face turn, or no, sorry, no, the Michael's face turn is coming pretty soon after this, um, and maybe there's you know there are elements of seeing them prepare for that a little bit. Um, Bulldog obviously being just you know the workhorse, and he's there. Um, just doing what he always did, but there's there's like there's great stuff that they they're carrying forward, and you see that in the run-ins in the Brett Diesel match, and there's great stuff that they are looking forward to to creating. Obviously the uh, Undertaker stuff where he basically ends up taking on a different member of the Million Dollar Corporation, like uh, you know from the end of '94 all the way, well I guess all the way through '95 really. Um, Pretty much, yeah. So it's. It's a great bridge show. And if you think about Rumble 95, it actually comes at pretty much the midpoint of the era. Because if you take if I mean, obviously, you can like, you know, um and ah about where things start and where things stop. But if you do take Survivor Series 97 as being as being the end of a new generation, um, then or if you, I mean, it's like, is it WrestleMania 13? Is it Survivor Series 97? You know, whatever you want to say. Um, you know, this is a point where you've, you, you know, if we've been going since kind of, end of 92 this is this is like a neat midpoint and all of brett's character stuff that's been going on all of sean's stuff has been going on all of diesel stuff's been going on like the main players have got a really rich background to look back on um and i think that's why it feels like it's like such a cohesive show because at this point it's such a cohesive product as a whole absolutely i've said many times you know if you watch new gen beginning to end I'd recommend going from uh, well, but basically, I mean, you can you can sort of start with maybe Survivor Series night two, you know, go all the way through to including Raws, go all the way through to Rumble ninety seven, I would say, and you would be forgiven for thinking that these character arcs were <laughs> were <coughs> excuse me planned out uh, week for week at the beginning and just played through because it hangs together so tightly and and this is such a important moment in so many of those arcs as you've just uh, so clearly explained Mav and one of the if not the most important of those is Bret Hart's character arc which I think is going to be uh, 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 a touchstone for discussion regularly in this ongoing series that we're doing um, and Rumble 95 is, is the first most important pay-per-view of his prime I think because 
it begins the character shift towards that more aggressive version of the hitman that eventually kind of uh, gives way under the weight of his moral outrage in 97. And also it's an important first pay-per-view for Diesel as champion. And I think that I think Kevin Nash has gone on record in the past with a certain dissatisfaction that on his first pay-per-view as champion, he doesn't get a clean victory. And I could sort of understand that, but it plays very much into to, into the favor of the Brett Diesel rivalry that had sort of started in, in almost indirect fashion at King <clears throat> King the Ring '94 the year before, with Brett defending the title against Diesel. It basically goes to a sort of no finish there. Same thing happens again here, and you set up the the best friend versus best friend thing for WrestleMania. So it's 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 a vitally important night for his character arc. And I would argue that it's a pretty important night for the character arc of Ted DiBiase as well, who's had who has a very interesting arc of his own outside of the ring through this period, which is all about his attempts to accrue uh, influence, uh, power through influence. And here he's gone from trying to uh, con the world into believing he's managing the Undertaker to now targeting the Undertaker with his cronies in the form of IRS on this pay-per-view. And of course, it's a very important night as well for Shawn Michaels' character arc. You said there that you can sort of see some of the groundwork for the face turn happening here. I'm not sure, I'm not sure how conscious that is because uh, I think that Vince didn't really see Shawn as a, as a baby face until his performance at WrestleMania 11. But nonetheless, you know, you have what is essentially pretty much a, a hero's performance from him in the Royal Rumble match, going from number one through to, you know, the end of it and, and winning it, it, albeit in, in I suppose, the underhanded manner in which he kind of wins it at the end is sort of what cements him, uh, you know, he's still the bad guy because of the way he gets that last elimination, I suppose. But certainly a very heroic and, and admirable performance from an athletic point of view for him. And so you get not just a pay-per-view, as you say, that, that looks back and, and forward at the same time. It's such an important joint in the arcs of so many of the most prominent players in the new gen and those prominent players are the people that fans should be thinking about when they think about the new gen is Bret Hart and Diesel and Shawn Michaels and the other aspect of it as well as on top of all of that cohesion on top of the theme that I mentioned on top of the 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 vision that you've sort of covered there, Mav, on top of the the hinge of character arcs for so many important players, is the fact that it does what we love so much, which is tell its own story through the night as well. And it sort of says, you know, if, if all of this goodness isn't good enough for you already, I'm going to give you a story through the night as well, which takes the form in Brett kind of seeking out revenge for the way that his title match ends with a couple of run-ins during the Royal Rumble match, which provide real highlights in that Royal Rumble match as well attacking Owen, attacking Bob Backlund and making sure to continue on that rivalry. So it's got so many plus points riding in its favor. And in a sense, that almost makes it the perfect pay-per-view to start this series with if the aim is to get people to reassess Nugent because the Royal Rumble 95 pay-per-view is dominated by the memory of the Royal Rumble match that night, which in turn is dominated by the notion that it's one of the worst Royal Rumble matches because they reduced the time between entrance to 60 seconds and there's not much name power in it. And actually, when you look past that folkloric idea and you start to dig into the meat of it, what you have is a magnificent element of WWF firing on all cylinders and proving, you know, in an age where they haven't proved it for a long time, just why they are the best when they are on form. And I think that this is very much them on form. 
you know, it's interesting what you mentioned about the uh, the, the the perception of the Rumble match because it it didn't really feel like um, for a long time that that was the perception of it, and that feels like something which has kind of been talked about more in the last sort of ten years or so, where I guess younger fans that that didn't experience it at the time are looking at it through a very modern lens. Like, uh, certainly I think amongst my generation, it was always very fondly regarded um, as a Rumble match and equally, you know, iconic matches like Brett and Diesel and um, and Razor and Jeff Jarrett uh, in particular on this show, you know, always were sort of um, touchstones of sort of great, you know, great match quality and great and great wrestling. But I think, as we said, last week um SummerSlam 95 tends to be the show that people remember 95 for um and that's you know that explains a lot of people's negative perceptions of it probably WrestleMania 11 to a lesser extent and SummerSlam 95 certainly are the two shows that people kind of use to beat this year down with and 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 as we said like WrestleMania 11 is actually really very very good indeed it's a bit more difficult to make a case for WrestleMania, sorry, for SummerSlam '95, but you know, I guess we'll we'll get there when we get there. Um, but yeah, I think I think the thing is to remember um, about a show like this is that it 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 does what it sets out to do, which is to have that night long story that you've mentioned to lay some groundwork for WrestleMania, to um, put all of the pieces in place. Um, for the next sort of six months or so of, of wrestling, you know, six to 12 months worth. And and it does all of those things extremely well. It's a show that has a purpose. And I think when you look at um, eras of wrestling or mini eras of wrestling where things go wrong, it's often because there isn't a purpose. You know, wrestling happens, but not with a purpose. Um, and that's that's something which which this show has. It has a very clear idea of what it's trying to achieve and that's i think why it's it's so successful um so let's have a look at let's have a look at um at the curtain jerker then um obviously the undercard of the rumble um is actually if you look back through history a very fruitful place for um excellent matches and of course um razor finds himself in this ic title slot two rumbles in a row because he he does it in 96 against gold dust if i remember if i'm remembering three correctly oh he doesn't open in 94 but he does have a, a cracker in 94 as well of an ic title match too so he ha- he's very much i mean i know you've said before that prior to ambrose uh mm. and kevin owens and so on um you know that the i the iconic uh wrestlemania sort of WrestleMania, the iconic uh, intercontinental champion was razor ramon to you and, and when you think of the ic title you think of razor ramon and and it's very much the case that when you watch this match with Jarrett, you know, you do think about what could have been if if Scott Hall hadn't been, you know, um, quite so into his illicit substances because he's kind of, he, he, you know, he's I know he made events in WCW and stuff when he went over there. But even there, like it, it doesn't feel like he had the sort of, you know, run on top, you know, right on top that it looked like at one point he'd inevitably have. Um, the 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 really curious thing one of the big curiosities about Royal Rumble '95 for me because this is the other thing about the show as well is uh, I find it to be I find the beginning of 1995 to be a a trove of 
and I'm going to use the phrase missed opportunities, but not because things didn't necessarily happen, but because things happened in places where they weren't maximized. And sort of, I'll dig into that a lot more next week when we're looking at WrestleMania 11, but, um, the Royal Rumble match. I mean, it's very curious to me that in 1995, um, they, you know, they, they did have, to be fair, it's a fair observation. They did have a shallow talent pool and it does show uh, parts in the Royal Rumble match. But the fact that they had Razor on hand and appreciating he, he was wrestling this title defense, it's not like it was unprecedented at this point for guys to wrestle in on on the undercard and then wrestling the rumble match as well it happened before um it was curious to me that they didn't deploy razor ramon in the royal rumble that year because he like you say he was so popular uh you you could make a very viable argument that he was the most popular you know character on the roster at certain points uh, and wildly popular could have easily made that transition into a main event run at any point during his wwf tenure after 19 19- after the summer of 1994, maybe even before. And he'd have, he'd have been a huge addition. And what's even more curious is that he was never in a Royal Rumble match at any point, which is just, you know, when you think about how prominent he was in the company as part of a new gen, you know, he was never less than the fourth guy on the roster. Uh, and, uh, you know, fourth top name on, on the roster, I think. And uh, maybe fifth, if you include The Undertaker in a, in a ranking, I suppose. Uh, but this was a, a real opportunity for him to, to, to be deployed in a, in a Rumble match. Uh, and it's curious to me that they chose not to do it, that they gave him this, this match with Jeff Jarrett at the start, which is a cracker, uh, and, that they, and that they sort of just, just let that be that uh, as, the, as the middle portion. And I think the best portion of, a, like I say, a trilogy of matches he wrestled for that championship at Royal Rumble I think I, I'm not a huge lover of the Goldust one in '96. I have to admit, um, but and I think that this one is is this intercontinental title defense with Jeff Jarrett is is his best one on a Rumble pay per view. But that's always been a curiosity to me that they didn't then sort of bring him back out for for the '95 Rumble because you could have easily fans would have very very easily bought into him as a legitimate prospective winner in that match. And that's such an important part of, of Rumbles. And one thing that Night Fives does so well is use roster positioning to its advantage. Uh, and Razor Man would have been a big boon in that regard. So it's not a criticism. It's more of a curiosity to me that that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I am a big fan of when people don't wrestle in the Rumble after they've wrestled in the undercard, I have to say. I, uh, oh, a, me a big, too. I, it's a big pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah, it's a big, big pet peeve of mine is someone like Dolph Ziggler resting in the in the uh, title match in 2011 and then being in the rumble like i hate that stuff um but but that aside like obviously they did have a shallow talent pool so you could have justified it and it would have worked um but yeah i, I think razor is that he's one of those guys that you just think oh, he was obviously that much more talented than and i'm not saying that kevin nash was untalented but but he is much more talented in the ring than kevin nash ever was um and had a lot more charisma than Kevin Nash ever did as well. And it is a, it's one of those things where you wonder, you wonder what might have been if he was ten years younger, um, you, you know, because he would have fit right in to that, you know, kind of ruthless aggression type of uh, picture. Um, well, yeah, I suppose absolutely. I guess the other aspect as well as he was, he was around much earlier than Kevin Nash. I think Diesel really benefited from being a bit mysterious to begin with. You know the, the the sense of mystery around him when he first showed up as Sean's bodyguard, 
uh, and started. And they obviously went all in with his push as well, didn't they, Diesel? Yeah. They, they like he won every title inside of a year. So um, you know he was doing Kurt Angle five years before Kurt Angle was doing Kurt Angle. Um, but obviously, not, like, not, that like, I'm, not that I'm comparing not no, no. That I'm comparing to Diesel, of course. No, but like, um, like we're saying though, like um, you know, we've said before that there's nothing wrong with being a career upper mid carder, and certainly absolutely. WWF of the era, you know, like people of the talent of, you know, of Ricky Steamboat never won a world title you know in in wwf um people like jake the snake people like ravishing rick rude i know rude had a couple of you know had some world title matches with warrior but never won it dbrc never won it um you know it was just the wwf way i, I guess and more specifically with razor ramon uh a an intercontinental champion that you kept going back to yeah in the same way that bret hart was a world champion that they kept going back to and that's something that they've really lost track of. This this narrative of you win the Intercontinental Championship on your way to the World Championship, I'm not really sure where that's come from, if I'm being honest. Well, Brett, I think it probably it stems from the, feti- the way that they fetishized the, the Steamboat Savage match. And, you know, Savage was Intercontinental Champion, then he went on to be world champion and obviously brett did a similar thing and sean did a similar thing you can't really count someone like diesel because he was intercontinental champion for such a short period of time and it was pretty certain he was heading to the world title anyway for instance you can't really count chris jericho because he was he's been intercontinental champion about 75 times uh, and it never really had i don't think a particularly direct impact perhaps it helped somewhat in the same way on his way to a world championship, which came much later in 2002. By the way, um, uh, and how funny so is it going to th- be when uh, WWE pettily uh, get The Miz to overtake Jericho's record? Yeah, uh, quite. <laughs> it's it's, um, but it's any, any day now. <laughs> but it's interesting you mention this because that was where I was headed. That's why it was such an, it's been such an error for them to think, okay, Miz has done his bit with the Intercontinental title now and we'll just we'll figure something out for him later. And that's why it's, it was such an error, I thought, when he was uh, still sort of around that Intercontinental Championship where people say, okay, now give him a main event run. It's like, no, no. You know, there's no... Have a, have a Mr. Perfect. Have a Razor Ramon. Have a guy that you can keep going back to. Razor in particular was the one who set the, the precedent. He was the first guy who became Intercontinental Champion like four or five times during New Gen. Um, you know, and, and he set the precedent and it benefits the roster incredibly when you have a guy in that kind of position that you keep cycling back to. It doesn't have to be intercontinental champion 24-7, doesn't even have to be chasing it 24-7 all year round. Uh, but, the, you, you know, you, you, do, you have the Miz as intercontinental champion for a few years, you know, and then you bounce around a couple of other guys, then you bring Miz back to it and you, and you have that guy that you anchor it around because then... Again, you're creating that sense of orbit in a mid card, and you're creating that sense of roster positioning that could come in, you know, very, very handy and play very much to the benefit of your roster at any given point. You knew that when someone, like when Diesel was feuding with Razor in the summer of '94, uh, and then kind of moved on afterwards, you knew it was kind of on 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 the trajectory to something greater. And while that wasn't necessarily the case for someone like Jeff Jarrett or even Goldust, there was a sense that when you got to Razor you'd reached another level because he was such a prominent force around that intercontinental championship. And that's something that they need. They need that consistency. And I think fans need to move away from this narrative of you should only win the IC if you're on your way to bigger things. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the thing is that, 
it is supposed to be it's supposed to be the semi main eventers belt um and somewhere on the line it became you know any old mid carder could hold it and that was the that's the big mistake it should be a guy who as you yes, say is a, is a number four or a number five in the company um you know and, that, and and actually that's probably why people do associate jericho with it in that way because in year 2000 he probably was number five you know so it it, it worked well for him and benoit to be fighting over that because they that's the position that the two of them were in um yeah, I think this this match though is is one which I think you know when people do when you do read these lists I do look at these listicles now and again I'm not a big fan of them uh, on the whole as a concept it's lazy journalism isn't it but but when you do come across these kind of ones that you have to click through on certain websites and whatever and if they did like you know top ten new gen matches this is a match you see talked about a lot it is one of those um. It is one of those new gen matches that people like. Um, you know, obviously we like a lot of them, but but yeah, this is one of the ones that that gets a lot of praise from people. Uh, you know, and rightly so because it's, you know, not only is it kind of Jarrett doing, I guess Jarrett doing his Ric Flair impression and doing it pretty well. Um, it's also that idea of, you know, there's a theme through the pay per view of matches restarting, <laughs> um, and. And run-ins, and people always think run-ins, the Attitude Era, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, this is this is like two and a half years before all that, and here we are um, with you know a restarted match um, as, with a screwy finish. Uh, later in the show, you got a world title match with multiple run-ins and multiple restarts, and then a dirty, and then a sort of yeah, a dusty finish, um, and then a rumble match that has somebody coming in and interfering and beating people up and this is in 1995 and and that's that's that when you start doing this myth busting that's the greatest thing about it is saying to people well look all these things that you say are attitude innovations were actually around you know a long time uh before but i think the thing is is that simple storyline of jarrett going after the leg razor being counted out because you know jarrett makes the stupid mistake of frying him out when he's got a bad leg and he can't get back in in time and then Jarrett realising what he's done and trying to goad Razor, you know, into using his machismo and getting back in the ring and then getting a cheap win. Um, you know, all of that is not only great storytelling, but it's just really well executed in the context of the match. Smart, character driven. <clears throat> uh, you know, it's exactly what New Gen cuts its teeth on. Uh, it's in, like you say, it's intelligent storytelling rooted in the characters acting the way their characters would act in that situation. Jeff Jarrett is vain enough to get a count out win before recognizing what he's done. And he is smart enough and manipulative enough to then try and goad the champion into restarting the match. Razor Ramon is uh, vain enough and uh, obsessed with machismo enough to allow the match to restart, despite the fact he's at a disadvantage. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, everything feels completely on point. It's so wonderful. And this happened every single time with New Gen. This wasn't a rarity. This was the order of the day. That's why it's such a beautiful thing to go back and revisit and rewatch. It's wrestling as art in exactly the way that I love. And... You know, it's it's presented with enthusiasm as it always was when you had Vince McMahon on commentary in particular, uh, and it's dramatic. It results in a championship uh, title, uh, 
change. I I love it. I mean, what a way to kick this this little series off as we attempt to to bust myths about new gen about uh, new gen as you say with this myth busting intercontinental uh, title match. It also sets up. I've been I've been mentioning the theme of of sort of uh, I guess theaters of competition. Let's call it that. I think is so wonderful about this show and um it really comes into its own with the world time match and Royal rumble that i'll talk about a little bit later but uh, it sort of gets the tone gets set here because what you're seeing is an intercontinental uh, title match that ends up looking like a lighter version of the world title match in a number of ways uh, and so you you get when you when you watch the whole show you get this wonderful impression beginning with this opening match of tears of competition and we're seeing how tough the competition is at that intercontinental championship tier, you know, how competitive it is, how dangerous it is, how even the most talented competitor can lose their championship because it's, it's that competitive and it, and you need to be that talented, either be it through your athletic prowess or your smarts or your craftiness. You know, you, you see very clearly how good you have to be to succeed at the level of intercontinental champion and then they later build on that with with later title matches and and, and later stipulation matches, which, as I say, I'll, I'll come to a little bit later on. So it sets the tone for the evening. It's amazingly tuned into characters. This is the kind of match where if you knew nothing about Razor Ramon and you knew nothing about Jeff Jarrett, you didn't even know their names. You sat down and this was the first ever match you saw of either one of them. You would leave it knowing exactly who Razor Ramon is as a character and exactly who Jeff Jarrett is, is as a character, and that again is a speciality for New Gen. And also, the last point I'd make: you mentioned there about sort of how it does things that we see in the Ascendancy during Attitude. That's such an important overriding narrative for 1995: is that this was the year that started that transition in the WWF, moving towards something more violent. By the time you get to 1997, we're always talking on this show about how change is a slow-moving process that you can't always see happening in the moment. And this is a key example because we're on the first match, on the first pay-per-view, it's already beginning the motions towards moving into or, or morphing into something we'd recognize as attitude. Just very, very slight glimpses of it, you know, the, the leanest kind of possible uh, reflection. Uh, people may think it's a strain and there's a reason for that. But it's because it's the beginning of a process that we will see play out over the course of 1995 and really kick into high gear by the time you get into you know, the summer of 96. But that's all really starting here at this point in 1995. That's why it's such an important year that, that shouldn't be overlooked in the way that it is. Starts with this wonderful opening match. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, transition, it's a transition year. Um, and the thing is, is that like with all transition years, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting to kind of see that product change in front of your eyes and um and, and this match is a, a prime example of that um and you know more than anything else it's just really it's just really well wrestled and well paced you know it's a pretty long match but you don't feel bored at any point yeah it's 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 just a really good IC title curtain jerker and all wrestling fans love those so yeah i mean if you're not already watching this along with us i i'd, I'd urge you to do so um, all right, so let's talk about um, about IRS and Taker then. As we said, it's part of a, a, a larger a larger storyline um, between you know DBS's bizarre obsession with the Undertaker, um, which has been going on for a, a good while, even by this point. Um, and obviously, IRS had been his tag team partner. Now, DBS is his manager, so they've got an interesting dynamic going on there. There's a great moment in the match when 
IRS basically, you know, gives DiBiase a bit of a shake and is like, you know, your plan's not working, <laughs> which which is a great bit of a character moment. Also gives IRS the the chance to cut the most underrated promo in wrestling history. <laughs> where it's like, no one will rest in peace until they have paid their taxes. <laughs> and he says it in The Undertaker's cadence, which is just like, it's like the, it's like the best bit of like pro, uh, promo trolling I can possibly imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously this is still zombie era Taker. So it, it's not like, it's not a kind of like hot 12 minute action packed match by any means, but like with all Undertaker matches of the era, particularly ones against veterans like, uh, like IRS, it's very characterful and it's very watchable. You know, I mean, if you, if the only Undertaker that you'd ever seen is, is WrestleMania 25 Undertaker, then yeah, you're not going to like this, but, <laughs> but you know, you have to watch it in the spirit of the time and the spirit of what the character was then. The important, the, the key into accessing this for anyone who hasn't seen it is to understand the, as I've already mentioned earlier in the show, uh, the unsuspecting character arc for DiBiase as a manager, and you, you know, his bizarre obsession with the Undertaker, as you phrase it, and you know that starts in '94 after the Undertaker disappears from from TV because of the casket match with Yokozuna, and eventually DiBiase brings him back when he's retired from active ring competition. But it's obviously a fake Undertaker. It's a it's a con, uh, and that's why you shouldn't necessarily sniff at, at Undertaker versus Undertaker either, which on the surface is a bizarre concept, and it's far from you know I'm not going to sit and call it a classic match. It obviously is not, <laughs> but that starts a that starts a process for DiBiase that you see him doing exactly what DiBiase would do as a manager, which is trying to retain a sense of influence in the company, uh, and uh, or, or rather power in the company, and he does this through influence. And you can't be much more influential than being the manager of the Undertaker, who is the most supernatural force in the entire company. So, to me, it makes perfect sense. A character like DiBiase would try and con everybody into believing, oh, you know, he's he's controlling the Undertaker now, because that way, then no one's going to mess with him. You know, it's classic kind of supervillain stuff. Obviously, the Undertaker eventually comes back. He's got a giant urn now. He's more powerful than he's ever been, so on and so forth. He embarrasses DiBiase, and DiBiase doesn't like to be embarrassed. And incidentally, this is a narrative I'm going to keep coming back to as we go through 95 pay-per-views as well, because you see it at WrestleMania 11. You see it when he manages Sid. You see it through the formation of the Million Dollar Corporation, on and on and on. Uh, and so that's the in for this is this is part of DBS's quest because if he can't control if he can't be the man to control the undertaker he's definitely going to try and be the man who puts the undertaker down for good and that's why you know you get king kong bundy come out after the fact as dbs has hired hitman to try and take him out that's your in into the bundy match at wrestlemania 11 as well it's it's not necessarily undertaker versus bundy as much as it is undertaker versus dbs uh, in much the same way to draw a really bizarre comparison, you're going to, you know, anybody listening to this show is never going to have anticipated me comparing King Kong Bundy versus The Undertaker to CM Punk versus Brock Lesnar. Uh, but in the same way that Punk was really feuding with Heyman at SummerSlam in 2013, throughout 95, Undertaker's really feuding with DiBiase and his, and his hired hitmen. The other important thing to understand about this match is that it plays a... Uh, uh, not necessarily a particularly important part, but a part nonetheless in the Undertaker's arc for this year, which begins that humanization of the dead man that really gets amplified when he starts feuding with uh, mankind uh, the following year. As you say, it's still very zom- very much zombie Undertaker. You know, he's lurching around. It's all a little bit cartoonish, for lack of a better word. 
But by the time you get to SummerSlam in 95, you've got them melting down the urn into change. In fact, I'm not sure. Is that already happened? I'm no. not sure. I think IRS may have it. In his... Oh, okay. It's like uh, they, get a chance Bear to is watch... still holding the urn up. And what they do do in this right. match is they is they've they've got their own druids. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Exactly. Case in point is it's it's more of the con. It's more of the sham, isn't it? Um, and so uh. You know, but that process begins in '95. That humanization of the Undertaker begins through his feud with the Million Dollar Corporation, you know, and is symbolized by the fact that it starts with them stealing the urn and melting it down into something mundane like a, you know, and every day like a gold chain. You know, they they quite literally begin to peel away those supernatural layers of the character to begin a process that then lasts through '96, '97, and on. So it's. You know, it does sort of sit apart from the rest of the the pay-per-view in in one sense. You know, it doesn't carry on that theme that I love so much about the pay-per-view, about theatres of athletic competition, because it's rooted in the supernatural character. But again, it's heavily, heavily imbued with character, heavily imbued with narrative, and is and is is weighed with purpose and weighed with uh, a, a point. Uh, and so, even this seemingly throwaway mid-card match. You know, it has a, it plays a, a part of much larger stories, and that's again why I love New Gen so much. Yeah, no, well said. Um, it, it's and it's another evidence as well, and I always say this that that you know a pro wrestling card is all about variety, and not yes. having every match be the best match on the card. You know, this match is, you know, it has a very obvious purpose to it. Um, and it's a very different purpose to what Brett and uh, and Diesel have, or to what Razor and, and and Jeff Jarrett has, or to what the tag match has, you know. And and th- and that's really really important. Um, and I actually sat and watched um the Clash of Champions recently, uh, and the one thing that I really enjoyed about it was that it did seem to have. You know, that sense of variety, it wasn't all, you know, it wasn't all the same, maybe because it was every championship, you know, it was kind of forced them to kind of have stuff like, you know, a a five minute women's tag match and stuff like that. But it seemed to have that kind of card variety um, in there. But that's just an aside, really. I just think that, you know, those sorts of attraction matches that Undertaker wrestled prior to mid 96 um, shouldn't be sniffed at quite as much as they are really particularly ones with good workers like you know like jake roberts and like uh and and like irs you know um so yeah no i agree entirely um all right let's uh let's talk about the the, the big one then so brad and diesel um obviously one of the one can of we the... have an hour just for this <laughs> yeah it's like uh uh we need we need a kind of 101 style on this really don't we but, but it's 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 um it's a match which uh, is, is, as you said, really interestingly rooted in the idea of athletic competition. Um, the pre-match interview with Brett, with, with I think it's Pettengill that does it, it is really interesting because it's like a very pensive Brett Hart kind of, you know, basically just asking to be left alone so he can kind of prepare. And then jump cut to Kevin Nash swaggering and feeling very confident. Um, so you've got interesting character stuff going on right from the word go. Um, and it's a, a sort of, as you said, a vicious and determined Bret Hart that's got a really obvious game plan 
to go after the legs of the bigger man, which Brett often did uh, in matches against bigger guys. And, you know, then sort of midway through the match, it starts to develop this kind of more heated character to it. And as you say, like that kind of um, more aggressive Bret Hart starts to starts to come out and then the shenanigans start happening. And it's just it's like a snowball rolling down a hill, this match, you know, it's like it, it just keeps gathering momentum until by the end, it's kind of, you know, veritably frenzied. I don't even know where to start with it. I mean, it's one of my favourite matches of all time. I think it knocks the Survivor Series match right out of the park. Uh, and it's... it's The, the build-up to it is very important because that's when you see Bret Hart really begin to lean into being more competitive, being more aggressive, being more vicious, saying he's going to go right after uh, Diesel, being very unapologetic about it all. And you see him wrestle matches on TV, in fact, a lot more aggressively. He has a great match with Jeff Jarrett on one of the early Monday Night Raws of 95, where you see this more aggressive Bret Hart. And that immediately, you know, immediately translates into the match. If you want a, if you want a demonstration of how to, you know, allow your character development to bleed into the very style with which you wrestle, then look this match up as exhibit A, because, you know, it's like inside the first minute, he's doing a suicide dive to the outside. You know, and in a day and age where every Tom, Dick and Harry does 15 suicide dives in a match, you, you kind of lose a sense of, 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 of the impact that that can necessarily carry. And what you have in a Bret Hart match is when he does it, there's a real vibe of, okay, this is, you know, this means business. This is going to be on another level. And then that aggression, like you say, it just gets more and more out of control. It, it's, it gets more and more uh, expansive even. Uh, and, you know, Brett does that wonderful thing that Mr. Perfect did with Brett at King of the Ring 93, where he toes that line between hero and villain. You know, he starts to get a little bit out of hand. There's uses a steel chair at one point on, on Diesel's leg. There's a real sense of him. You know, it's almost like WrestleMania 13, two years early to some respects for Brett in some respects. Uh, which is particularly ironic given he was so fresh off of the Bob Backlund feud in which Bob Backlund accused the current generation of having no moral values, which is exactly what Bret Hart would eventually start accusing people of in 97. That's a story for another day, but another example of the wonderful cohesion to the character arcs, of which this match is so important. It gives Diesel an opportunity to show his mettle as well, because even though he doesn't get a victory, what he does is he stands toe-to-toe with the best competitor in the company, on a level of competition you don't see anywhere else on the card. I've already mentioned this with the a number of times on the show, but that again, that theme of theatres of competition it is very much in play here because what you get right before the Royal Rumble match, if uh, oh, so I beg your pardon, there's the tag team title match after this, yeah. but before the the Royal Rumble match, what you get is a demonstration of if you're going after one of the if you're going after this championship in the main event of WrestleMania this is the level at which you have to compete. And if you're a character in, inhabiting that world and you're watching this match on a, on a monitor backstage knowing that you're going to have to beat 29 other guys just to get a shot at this title and you're seeing what these two guys are doing in that match, that's to me, that alone tells an incredible story. The tone simply on its own tells an incredible story in cohesion with all the other parts of the pay-per-view. It's like, as I said, an exacerbent, exacerbated, augmented level uh, of the 
intercontinental championship match. It's like the IC title match dialed up to 10 or 11, I guess, as the, as the, uh, as the meme would go. But um, there's so much to love about it. I, and I've seen people criticize the way that it concludes. Cause you, as you mentioned, you know, there's, there's a run in uh, from uh, uh, Owen and, and Backlund to begin with on Brett. And then the ref lets the match carry on because it's a big title bout. You know, he wants to see a, it come to a conclusion. Then there's a run-in from Shawn Michaels. And again, the ref lets the match carry on. Then all of them run in. And that's when the match gets thrown out. But I love, I, people don't pay enough attention to, and with New Gen, you, you know, it's the devil's in the detail a lot of the time. New Gen is so brilliant at paying attention to the small details. It's the phrasing that matters. The referee throws it out because he can no longer maintain control. And it's so important that, that they use that particular phrase because that's what plays into the tone of the match. You use the term snowballing, Mav. It snowballs out of control until the referee has no choice but to but to throw it out, despite the fact he's done everything in his power to keep the match going, to excuse the match carrying on, uh, and to allow it to go to a conclusion because it's of such a competitive nature. It's at such a high level of competition that it deserves to have a conclusion. So even the way the match, the tone tells a story, the action tells a story, and then even the decision itself tells the story. That's why this is such a masterpiece to me. Uh, the content is expansive. You know, it's it, they seem to just run the run through every single possible move they can think of to throw at the other guy. Uh, there are times where it devolves into just a slugfest. There's technical wrestling in there. There's you know, extra legal violence in there. I just think it's the most phenomenal match. And most importantly of all, because of that, as I keep saying, that theme of theatres of competition, because what you're seeing is so aggressive and you know that the competitors in the Rumble are pursuing an opportunity to wrestle at this level, that to me is then in turn what allows the fact that the Royal Rumble is reduced to 60 seconds between entrants to actually become an advantage rather than a disadvantage but we'll get into that a little bit later when we get to the Royal Rumble match. So again, what you get is a multi-layered story, heavily rooted in character, continuing character development, and building on arcs, you know, telling fascinating story in its own right, uh, and and just providing an absolute classic match that plays into the wider puzzle of the pay-per-view as well. I mean, come on, guys, what more do you need from your wrestling than this? Yeah, and, and like... I think the great thing about the match is that the, the structure and the way they play with the crowd's expectations. So, you know, the first running comes and you hear the crowd audibly deflate, you know, and boo, because obviously the heels are in, you know, beating up Brett. As we said, it's, it's all leftovers from WrestleMania 10, from SummerSlam, from uh, Survivor Series with Backland. Like, is all that stuff going on, Owen convincing, you know, uh, Helen to throw the towel and all that stuff. Um, all of that is in there. Owen completely steals the show. By the way, I've got to say this: like, like he he goes in, and obviously you know, like the ref gets him out of there. And on the way down the ramp, as as only Owen can, he mugs at the camera and shouts, "He's a loser! I'm the king of the castle!" <laughs> <laughs> it's just like it's the most brilliantly like improvised Owen Hart like moment. Just completely absurd, but brilliant. Um, I think my well my my, my favourite is actually from the Survivor Series match you mentioned when, <laughs> when when he lets Bob Backlund win the championship but then he runs out with the championship above his head as if he's the one who's just won it. It's it's, it's honestly everything Owen Hart did was just so brilliant. 
you know, can't say enough how great he was. But, um, you know, when Fink does that announcement, you know, and it's he teases the crowd. I've just always loved, I mean, I mean, who doesn't love the Fink? It's like that nostalgic, you know, I felt like I got a hit of dopamine just from hearing the Fink announce. You know, like, uh, the re- <laughs> the, you know, like the referee, uh, the referee has announced the match will continue. <laughs> it's just like the crowd yeah. cheer. And then it happens again. You know, this time it's like Michaels and um, who is it? It's Michaels and Jarrett. Jarrett, who attack Diesel, and it's like again the ref announced it will continue, and at the end it's just like a complete free for all. You know, Diesel saves Brett from. I think it's. Sorry, I was going to say, I think Michaels Michaels attacks Diesel on his own first, and then randomly Jeff Jarrett is there at the end for some reason. Absolutely, and 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 like, it's, it's like complete free for all at the end. And Diesel was like, you know, Diesel clears the ring as the big man does, and he saves Brett, who's in the crossface chicken wing with Backlund. And it's that really uneasy thing where they shake hands, but you know they're not pals. Um, and the thing is, is that, and again, people forget the context of this. Um, non finishes in title match were actually a massive WWF tradition. You know, really right the way into the middle of 96 or so. And he, and actually, if you take the beginning of Attitude, 98 and 99 is full of them. Absolutely full of them. Like Austin, you know, in the autumn of 98, is in all sorts of screwy finishes that, that aren't, inverted commas, clean. And anyone that thinks that champions need clean finishes has obviously never, ever watched any of any of Stone Cold and Steve Austin's title matches, ever. <laughs> I, just, I just put that one, one out those, there. It's one of those... Well, it's one of those weird modern, postmodern, uh, you know, misguided elitist ideas. I think that's that's come out of this notion of real wrestling fans and that kind of snobbery. I think. And you know, there's no doubt that that wrestlers themselves always say, "Oh, yes, I wanted a clean finish." Wrestling bookers never thought that. <laughs> I think that's the key thing, right? Wrestlers might have thought they wanted a clean yeah, finish. Probably. If you read Beck's book, he's all over like, "Oh, I didn't get enough clean wins in my career." Like you read all, of, you know, all of his comments on the various you know, matches that he has. And he's always saying you should have won this clean and that clean and uh, and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, actually, those, that sort of booking is key to the suspension of disbelief. Because, of course, in a chaotic environment like a pro wrestling show, yeah, people like Owen Hart and Bob Backlund are going to go and settle some scores. What's the ref supposed to do? Um, and it all kind of feeds into the world building, the shared universe that we've got going on here. So, it is a, a it's a brilliant match. It's a brilliant experience to uh, to sit and watch. It is one of the greatest matches of the nineties, if not the greatest of all time. Um, and it it is one. I don't you know I don't think we need to set so many straw man straw men here really. I think it is a match which which does get a, a lot of credit for how good it is. Um, generally speaking, uh, but yeah, definitely if you've never seen it, if you are a younger fan and you you haven't ever ch- had a chance to watch it. Even if you've not got time to watch the whole show, definitely watch that one. If you don't got time to watch the whole show, make the time to watch the whole show. <laughs> this also. I mean, Christ, how much, how much, how much wrestling do people consume now that there's AEW and NWA and and uh, NJPW and <laughs> WWE and NXT and everything in between? Take one of those out your weekly schedule for one week and watch Night Five Rumble instead. Well, this is the thing. I was, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, I, you know, like we've said before, we watch a lot of back catalogue. If I was watching that much weekly wrestling, like from that many companies, and you know, like where would I find the time 
to actually get the money's worth out of my 999 it's like the the, the value in the 999 is every pay-per-view ever <laughs> you know it's never been in the pay-per-views or the weekly show um but anyway or ride along that, that's an aside or indeed or, or indeed legend's house um so uh <laughs> Let's, uh... Said with, with uh, witheringly passingly. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh dear me, I do like that. I, I, I do, I do like the, uh, I do like the Edging Christian thing. though. that's good fun. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about the tag match, which again is good card structure because you have this really epic match, and then you got a a good fun Cinderella tag title win for uh, one two three kids and. Sparky plug, bless him. Um, or I think he's just spark plug, but so taking the Y off it by this point in time. Um, Bob Holly, and uh, they're given no chance, of course, against um, against Bam Bam um, and Tatonka, and yet they pull the victory out. And then classic bit of heel tag team stuff at the end. Uh, Tatonka and Dibiase leave in disgust, um, which of course leads to Bam Bam getting taunted by Lawrence Taylor, which leads to the altercation, which leads to the match. And of course, you know, um, 24, 23 years later, they would do the exact same thing with Mayweather and Big Show, pretty much. So there's a massive... And Maurice, and, and just at this very moment, they're doing something very similar with Tyson Fury and Braun Strowman. So it's, it's, it's a... Um, yeah, it's a precedent that they're setting again for legitimate sports people, inverted commas, um, and pro wrestlers having a kind of crossover uh, match to appeal to a wider audience. I mean, I've said before on this show, you know, I mean, uh, I think out of the, uh, the the three or four of us or five of us or how many people have done this show over the years, like I'm probably the only person that does watch American football on our show. And, you know, LT is like, probably like top three top five people to ever play the game like he's that well he's that much of a legend and so um like it's a really big deal that they got him and i I, i'm not surprised at all that wwf uh went all out to make that the main event because the crossover appeal of that would have been would have been absolutely huge but but yeah so it's used to set that up but it's, it's a fun little tag match in its own right isn't it and um anything involving one two three kids i will always have fun watching um, you know, not so much of a sparky plug fan, but you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, well, tag team wrestling is, is a, a, another kind of key example of of, of a new gen uh, myth because no one really thinks about tag team wrestling when they think of new gen. It's probably last on their minds. Uh, they, you know, smoking guns. Who else would people name? And one of the reasons for that is because there isn't really the same kind of concept teams around during new gen that you get in other eras you know you don't have loads of like in the 80s where you had heart foundation and demolition and the british bulldogs and the rockers you know every team had a concept not the case with new gen in new gen most of the time the kind of the real with with maybe an exception in 96 most of the time the the real meat of tag team wrestling came from incidental teams from story driven teams teams that were brought together through narrative so bam bam bigelow and tatonka may seem like a random pairing but the reason they're a pairing is because they're part of the million dollar corporation incidentally there again is another example of ted dibiase trying to accrue power through influence by having two of his guys become tag team champions which is the underlying narrative for this particular match which is also the final of a tournament to crown uh, new champions after the titles had been in. Wait for it. 
abeyance. For, uh, uh, there's a pond meme for you. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, for well, I can't remember how it ended up vacant, but they but it escapes me in the immediate. But they're, they're vacant, uh, and so what you get is really kind of in a lot of ways just a, a, a typical new gen tag team title match because you have two as i say incidental tag teams brought together by narrative and again you have that that theme in its own right of theaters of competition in this case you have a real a real competitive vibe to this match through the sense of underdog through the sense of one two three kid and and bob holly have no chance here you know you have to be of the level of bam bam and tatonka and the million dollar corporation if you want to succeed in the tag team division. And the story is all about Holly and kid rising to that level, which of course also plays into the theme of kids arc. So in, mm. a, in a sense, you have another piece of the one, two, three kids character arc that had started with his upset victory over right. Razor Ramon in 1993. He'd already been tag team champions, uh, tag team champion once already in an oddball partnership with Marty Gennetti at the turn of 93 and 94. Uh, so so you're on point there as well. And and Holly and Kid don't hold the titles for very long. They drop them to the guns shortly after on, on Raw, I think, at some point, or Superstars, uh, certainly in time for WrestleMania 11. Uh, and even those matches follow the same competitive vibe as this one. So even this seemingly throwaway match has, again, contributions to make to long-running character arcs. It has a basis in narrative, and it contributes to the presiding theme of the pay-per-view itself you know this is new gen firing on all cylinders where everything has purpose and everything contributes to something larger and that's to my mind where you find truly great a truly great professional wrestling product transcendent even professional wrestling product no absolutely everyone fulfills their their own purpose and everything is part of the the story mechanism as you say like throwing together tag teams can be a really important way um to utilize underutilized talent and a guy like sparky plug was you know other than a, a, a one bizarre moment at like rumble oh four, 2004 yeah like apart from that one bizarre moment he was never likely to be a world title challenger but he was a solid hand and you know and it, it worked in, the, in that moment as a mechanism for splitting up bam bam and tonka who you know were a a fairly dominant force at the time um so yeah, very much worth your while. And then, of course, we're on to the Rumble. As we said before, it's, it is, I mean, it's funny how people, um, I'd have been bothered by the 60 second thing personally, because they actually explain it at the beginning by saying that, um, it's going to make it harder for everyone because there's less breathe, there's, there's less breathing space. Um, and McMahon really sells that. I've never really noticed that before. Having, you know, like when I rewatched it yesterday, it was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. They really make a big deal of it on the commentary. Um, so I've, I've never had a problem with it myself at all because, you know, it's been two minutes. It's been a minute and a half. It's been a minute. Who cares? Like somebody comes out every so often and it's a battle royal in reverse. Like, I mean, you know, it's the rumble. Like, come on now. Um, <laughs> so it, it that's never worried me. The relative lack of star power, I think, is exaggerated because you've still got Bulldog, Michaels, Luger. You know, it's not like it's it's not wall to wall jabronis by any means. And some of the jabronis in there would go on to have very good careers. I mean, I think about, you know, inver- you know, inverted commas, Aldo Montoya would have a great career in ECW as just incredible. So it's not like, you know, the people in, in, in the ring are just complete nobodies. I do think it's pretty funny they had to phone up Bruce Pritchard's brother to uh, come and make up the numbers. That's pretty that's a pretty funny one. And some guy 
who was like on WrestleMania one tagging with Adrian Adonis, like <laughs> just randomly turning up. Um, but you know, it's got a lot of charm, I think for that reason, I think the same about 97 when they got all those um, AAA guys from Mexico making up the numbers, like it, it, it's got charm to it, you know, and because the, the charm is that any, you know, the, the story of the Rumble is it's, it's a Cinderella story. Anyone can win it, theoretically. Um, that is the, the, the beauty the, of the... Like, that Santino thing that everyone went wild about in 2012 or whatever. Was it 2012 11. or 2011? 2011, right? Everyone went mad about the Santino moment. Why do people go mad about it? Because it plays into the Rumble's most enduring myth. That anybody well, could, could take away... I mean, I say myth because it is a myth because, re, you know, when has a jabroni ever won the Rumble? But, but you know, as with all myths, it works on the fact that it could be true. Um, so I've, I'm not, I've not got a well, problem I mean, with well, I particularly. You're, you're, you're more generous to, to other people for why they got behind that moment than, than I would be. I would call it just... Well, anyway, story for another time. The um, <laughs> the thing about the 1995 Royal Rumble um, match, uh, I think it is. I think it's a fair critique to say that, comparatively speaking, it's a little thinner on the ground in terms of star power. It has its fair share of stars, as you rightly point out. Um, but it's you know, if if someone is of the opinion that there are uh, you know a, a a prominent number of, for want of a better word jabronis that's actually to my mind that plays actively into the theme i keep banging on about on this show um this is what i've been waiting to talk about we've seen the the level of competition people need to compete with um to become intercontinental champion we've seen how far that escalates when you get to the world title you know that scene between brett and diesel it's like okay there's only two guys in this company who are at that level that's brett and diesel and if i want to be there i've really got to prove something so the fact that it might be littered up with with jabronis actually plays into that theme because it you know it 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 plays on the idea that actually there aren't there's nobody in this company that's at that level that Britain and Diesel are you know that that there's we've got all these wrestlers here and none of them are up to scratch because the rumble on this event is a proving ground it's a sprint and it's what it is is it's 30 guys trying to prove that they can compete at the level that we've already seen is necessary to compete at to be in contestation for the world championship. That's also why the 62nd thing works so well for the 95 Rumble when you watch in context, because as you as you were saying, Mav, the way that they play it up very explicitly is, you know, it's the most fast and furious Royal Rumble match ever the action is constantly changing you don't have time to adjust to each competitor until the next one comes out even in the tight time frame that you would have traditionally in a two minute or 90 minute uh period between entrants so the 60 second thing is actually pretty crucial to the story that's being told in the wider view and that's why as well it's the perfect moment for someone to win from the number one spot and for it to come down to numbers one and two because if you can't if you can't actively demonstrate you're at the level Brett and Diesel are in the same environment Brett and Diesel are, if you can't literally do it in the same way, you do it in a comparative way. And the comparative way is to say, I've just gone through 29, 28 other guys in the fastest changing, most furious Royal Rumble we've ever done, and I'm still here at the end. 
that proves that Shawn Michaels is at the level that he needs to be at and British Bulldog is at the level that he'd need to be at to challenge for the world championship. So the way that they play with the the uh, the format that year and the the way that the kind of the 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 roster of the match looks all actively plays into the again the presiding theme of the event that's why i always say if you want to watch the night five rumble match watch in the context of the entire show so that you get a feel of these theaters of competition and you can see how this match has this silent relationship with the world championship match that precedes it earlier on in the pay-per-view and that's why as well when you get that kind of uh technicality of a conclusion it feels so wonderfully sort of uh cheap even though it isn't because it's kind of like sean sort of won it on a technicality in the end despite the fact you know he's proven his athletic capability so there's this nice sort of uh this nice contradiction at the heart of the way that it ends as well that i really like uh, and so you get all of that in play and then when you start digging into the match you know, you get a lot of, of really great kind of traditional rumble tropes that you'll often find in great rumble matches. You get the run-ins from Bret Hart as all of that intensity from the the world title match boils over. You get the coast-to-coast performances of, of Michaels and Bulldog, and Bulldog should be in the same breath as Michaels when people talk about that performance. Um, you get Luger, who uh, presents... Uh, a key example of how roster positioning, if you've got strong roster positioning generally, when it comes to a match like Royal Rumble, it's worth its weight in gold. Because even though Luger, you know, you know Luger's not going to win this thing, the fact that he's, you know, exactly where he fits in on the roster year round means that he's automatically a favorite. He automatically has a greater chance of winning than other people. And when you get that kind of natural inbuilt ranking, that makes the Royal Rumble really, really fun because it creates narratives just out of thin air. It magics them up out of thin air because you've got that clear roster positioning. You have Crush coming in as the big man at number 30, the fresh big man who presents a real threat at the end. Uh, you get a really cool sort of final four. Um, there's, there's, you, get, you get the beginnings of the allied powers you know, as, as a team. Uh, there's a lot going on uh, uh, un, in a way that people don't recognize. You know, it's not just about Sean and Bulldog. There's a lot that goes on in the narrative of this particular rumble match uh, and that's even if you watch it in isolation but I, I can't recommend watching it in the context of at least watch it in a double bill with the world time match at the very least but it's best viewed i think in the context of the entire pay-per-view because that's when the theme comes into play and that's when the way they play about with the concept the way they present the the reasons why they've played around with the concept the way the match looks the way the match plays out all of it takes on a whole new lease of life um, and that's when it was when I watched it for the first time in the context of the entire show that I kept, that I saw went oh oh I get it you know that's what this is about really um, and ever since I've just been been head over heels in love with it and with its entire pay per view. And you know when you look at when you look at the uh, the way that 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 rumble match um, functions, you know it really. It really is like beautiful in its simplicity, and you know the sniffiness over it. I think is quite a recent, is quite a recent phenomenon, um, because it's such a modern wrestling fan thing to do to say, oh, but it's only forty minutes long, 
or 40 minutes yeah. or, it, or it's only it's not a real coast to coast it's only 40 minutes like that's such a dumb thing to say because ultimately right my, <laughs> my, my, michael's and bulldog have outlasted the other people whether they outlasted them by 40 minutes or 40 hours is kind of immaterial the point is that they've outlasted them and so they've still gone in first and are still there at the end and this idea of you know iron man runs and obviously benoit went an hour and something mysterio then went an hour and something as well um and and all of this i mean the mysterio the mysterio comparison is vitally important really because Sean and Bulldog do 10 times as much in their 40 minutes in this match than Mysterio does in that entire one hour and two minutes that he's in in 06, where he basically does a couple of things at the start and then just takes a takes a nap for about 60 minutes before he pops up at the end and he gets lauded for the longest performance ever. It's the cheapest win I can remember, both in, in real terms because of the horrible way they hijack real emotion over Eddie's loss. Um, and 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 in the way that his you know he doesn't earn that win at all that year it's it's so obnoxious. Sorry, I had to. I, I, <laughs> insights but, ranting from. But me. again, uh, this idea of saying, I mean, and again, I I just think that the whole idea of saying that one rumble win is more legitimate than another rumble win is kind of like ridiculous in itself. It's like there are a certain set of conditions at play that year and somebody won the rumble and was written to win that rumble in a certain way for a certain reason um michael's a bulldog were the first people to go in one and two and stay till the end that was a unique thing for the time michael's is the first person to skin the cat with one foot um on the floor and uh, and and go on and win the match and as we said that becomes an important idea in the rumble's history kind of moving forwards michael's is um main event push i mean it's interesting because obviously he had a world title match as, as early as 92 um and he gets you know this one in 95 but then has to wait all the way until mania 12 for the kind of decisive one and so even that you know is is a career path that we've seen you know somebody like uh somebody like a dean ambrose take in the past you know um in the past few years that that you know they get their kind of first go at a main event and then they you know they kind of uh, going to mid card for a bit, they have another go, and then you know, I well, I guess with Ambrose, he didn't really get the inverted commas decisive one. They or... leave for WCW. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it's it's like um, Michaels's career path is an interesting thing to look at here because clearly the company loved him. Um, he was, you know, demonstrably one of the two best wrestlers on the roster, um, and it I remember as a big Michaels fan. I mean, this sort of 92 to 95 early 95 michaels that was my guy you know the character more than anything else is is still you know up there with my favorite pro wrestling characters ever i mean particularly the kind of 92 93 version but even at this point like he was still absolutely brilliant that cocky heel role um and he was never quite the same i don't think like as soon as he had that weird little face run um and you know the dx stuff isn't as good as people think it is you know and it's gonna be the most hipster thing ever but and and so predictable that i would say this but 92 to 95 sean's really where it's at when it comes to sean anyway um, <laughs> um but I, I was interested when i watched it like bulldog's performance because he's the beast mode guy uh and i put this out on twitter 95 bulldog would be o3 lesnar as a <laughs> dream match would be something that I'd have I'd have loved to have seen. Um, 
you know, that kind of young Lesnar when he could still do all that mad athletic stuff. And uh, before they start, you know, obviously before his most recent return, when they just kind of, you know, used him as a monster and nothing else. But that sort of WrestleMania um, 19 Lesnar uh, up against this version of the British Bulldog, like, God, how good would that be? But anyway, but yeah, Bulldog's performance in this is brilliant. Like, and he is an absolute, absolute force of nature, massive, massive beast, just taking people down left, right and centre. Um, and as you say, it's it's one of those. Um, I guess it's a, it's a sliding doors moment, isn't it? Because Bulldog, as well, um, you know, he challenged for world titles as a heel later that year, um, but he never got his world title. And if Bulldog had wrestled in the early two thousands or the mid two thousands, he'd be a ten time world champion. Uh, and it is a, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a funny thing, isn't it? Like you know where you arrive in pro wrestling history because you think about so many people from the new gen in the climate of this sort of you know turn of the millennium would be you know absolutely huge stars on a brand split type of environment that's just a random yeah, aside really five's- Bulldogs Night Five is is very important and and again plays into that same thing I've been banging on about because I, I've always said with Bulldog in the new gen he's the ultimate ultimate sort of new gen wrestler because he's as, he's as technically sound as Brett he's as swift and athletic and as athletic as Sean uh, and he's as strong and powerful as Diesel you know you've got all three together so how the hell do you combat him so uh, but we'll see that come into play as we go along in in the series here. Um, I've I, I've already said my piece. I think you know, like I say, magnificent Royal Rumble match, best watched in context. Magnificent pay per view. Everything about Royal Rumble 1995, I absolutely adore. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a it's a great show to go and watch. I actually really love that Rumble by itself because it is only 40 minutes long, and it's a great it's a great little palate cleanser. I think. Um. So so yeah. Uh, great show with an all-time great world championship match on it um, and uh, an underrated Royal Rumble and an all-time great mid-card classic on there. So a great way to get this series started. Um, if you haven't watched it yet, but you're inspired to buy this podcast, well, that's why we're doing this podcast. And next week we are going to look at WrestleMania 11 and we may start some fights with people because we're both fans of that show <laughs> and the prevailing fan opinion is somewhat the other way um but i'm actually really looking forward to, to watching wrestlemania 11 during the week um in preparation uh so we can take down some more myths i very much look forward to it absolutely so uh do check out the rest of lop radio shows we are now on youtube um our good friend imp is now uploading uh all the podcasts from LAP Radio onto the uh, Lords of Pain YouTube channel. Um, so you can check us out there as well as on, on Spreaker and on iTunes and on LAP's main page. So, you know... Everywhere you look, apparently, now. We are coming at you from all angles. We are the telly screen in 1984. Um, so, <laughs> um, from the right side of the pond, have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you soon. Bye!